0: the January 13th Global News Review. I'm Patrick Ryan, President of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. With me today are Ambassador Dick Bowers and Dr. Breck Walker. Uh, Good afternoon, gentlemen. Good
1: afternoon, Patrick.
0: Hey, Pat, how are you? Uh, I'm well, thank you. Um, Well, we left off with uh, Ambassador Bowers uh, last uh, week at uh, about 2 o'clock central time as we were finishing up our global news review looking to his left at his television there and telling us that there was a uh, invasion of the U.S. Capitol going on and here we are a week later and uh, in the background on on my television is the impeachment hearings uh, second impeachment of President Donald Trump so it's been quite a week in uh, American history and the fate and fortunes of uh, U.S. democracy. Um, before we get into our program, do you fellows have any comments that uh, you want to add to what's going on in the atmosphere?
2: Oh, brick. Well, uh, uh, it's certainly a historic period, and uh, they'll be writing about this uh, in the history books, I think, and in the, in the general survey American history books, fifty years from now. So. Uh, uh, it's been interesting to watch and of course disappointing at the same time but uh, it's historic.
1: Yeah it's, I, I, it's historic and I, I'm very concerned that we as a people seem to have lost much of our common purpose. Uh, the boundaries of uh, unacceptable behavior seem to have widened quite a bit and people are doing things that are very, very detrimental to our our democracy and our way of life. So, we're going to have to pull our pants up and get, get moving if we're going to save this thing.
0: Yeah, well, it'll be an interesting uh, week to come. A week from today, uh, uh, President-elect Biden will be uh, sworn in. We'll have a new president, new administration. But uh, the the prospects for violence between now and then are very high. To listen to the security experts, uh, the FBI, and all the agencies in Washington are uh, on high alert and very concerned. I tell you, it, it uh, it's a pretty ugly scene seeing uh, uh, seven-foot barricades get erected uh, around the Capitol. Um, you know, you guys spend time in Washington and yeah, you kind of get used happened. to just uh, walking around and, and walking up the steps and going past the White House on Pennsylvania Avenue and and now it's like uh, a fortress up there.
1: Yeah, and the fact that the U.S. military's highest commanders have sent a a letter to the troops reaffirming what their job is to to, uh, promote and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That's unprecedented in our history.
2: that's a staggering, yeah, that's a staggering uh, uh, event. Secretaries of Defense from both parties, former secretaries from both parties, and. And maybe uh, the reaction other than for the, in my mind, the reaction to what happened, except by the most loyal Trump supporters, uh, has been so uh, negative towards what happened that uh, maybe we've hit the low point and that's gonna bounce us back a little bit and uh, get people thinking about uh, the things that you're talking about, Dick, about how how we behave in, in the United States of America.
1: What what is truth and what are facts and how can what can we agree on? That what kind of people do we want to be? All um, well, that's sort of in play at the moment, it seems
2: to me. Yeah.
0: Yep, for sure. Okay. Some of the Trump
2: supporter costumes though, will make good make good Halloween costumes come next October, maybe.
0: Uh, it was it was quite a scene. Uh, uh, you know, you can't make this stuff up. It's pretty incredible. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's uh, jump in. Uh, Dick, why don't you uh, start us off with our, our topics for this week?
1: Well, we got three topics we're going to hit on today, Pat and Breck. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the international reaction to the attack on American democracy by the insurrection and riot uh, at our capital, And then we're going to talk about uh, Secretary of State Pompeo's 11th hour move on Taiwan. What's going on at the last week or so of this administration's in office, and what are we doing with Taiwan. And then we're going to talk about Iran and the 20 percenters. You know, It's only uranium. What's Iran up to, and why are they enriching uranium? So okay. those are the three.
0: Great. Brett, uh, question of the week. I don't think we have any uh, foreign names or uh, pronunciation <laughs> here.
2: I haven't had to have any uh, pre-quiz announcement uh, training yet, but the question of the week is, two-thirds of Americans surveyed this weekend believe President Trump bore responsibility for a deadly mob attack on the United States Capitol on January 6th. What official tenet of US foreign policy was undermined by the attack? And as you can see, the uh, possibilities are A, multilateralism, B, promotion of democracy, C. Validation of office office holders' fitness and D. Security of the seat of government. And we'll have the answer to that at the end of the program.
0: Terrific. Well, as uh, you know, we we could probably talk uh, for many hours about what's going on in the domestic front with the uh, attack on the Capitol last week. But uh, what we concern ourselves with here at the World Affairs Council is uh, looking at what's going on in the world. And definitely, this was not just a local or even national event, it's uh, had worldwide implications. So Dick, why don't you uh, start us off with what we're seeing in terms of reaction around the, the world and we'll, we'll uh, dive in a little bit to uh, the importance of, uh, as, as our question of the week suggests, what, what tenets of American foreign policy is affected by all this?
1: Well, um, this was a riot that was felt around the world And uh, perhaps one of the uh, way to start out here is uh, to take a quote from the president of the Council on Foreign Affairs, Richard Haas, who who put it this way. Um, What took place last week was a distinctly American failure, but the consequences go far beyond American shores. A post-American world, one no longer defined by U.S. primacy, is coming sooner than generally expected. Less because of the inevitable rise of others than because of what the United States has done to itself. So if January 6 leads to collective soul searching and internal reform, the United States can begin to regain the soft and hard power it will need to help manage great power rivalry and contend with global challenges. As always, foreign policy begins at home. A post-American world will not be dominated by the United States, but it does not have to be led by China or defined by chaos. So I think in general, uh, as far as general reactions go, our friends and allies were appalled, aghast and shocked. And our adversaries and enemies saw the riot as proof that America is morally bankrupt and the democracy is really does not work. As the chaos unfolded, several foreign embassies in Washington issued stay-at-home notices for their citizens and European leaders begin deploying the language usually reserved for incidents in which democratic values and the rule of law are under siege. In the United Kingdom, for example, Prime Minister Boris Johnson stated that, I want to say that all my life, America has stood for some very important things an idea of freedom and an idea of democracy. And so far as he encouraged people to storm the Capitol, and insofar as the president has consistently cast doubt on the outcome of a free and fair election, I believe that he was completely wrong. In Canada, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said that Canadians are deeply disturbed and saddened by the attack on democracy in the United States, our closest ally and neighbor. Violence will never succeed in overruling the will of the people. Democracy in the U.S. must be upheld, and it will be. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, who rarely, rarely comments on the internal affairs of the Alliance's member states, urged Americans to respect the outcome of the November election. And German Chancellor Angela Merkel said that riots made her feel angry and sad. A basic rule of democracy, she said, is that after the election, there are winners and losers. Both have to play their role with decency and responsibility so that the democracy remains the winner. And she added that she regretted very much that President Trump did not admit defeat in November. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu described the violence as disgraceful and said it should be vigorously condemned. Lawlessness and violence are the opposite of the values we know Americans and Israelis, Israelis cherish, he said. And we have friendly readers from the Pacific, friendly leaders from the Pacific who responded as well. Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison condemned what he called the very distressing scenes of violence. and New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern tweeted, "What is happening is wrong. Democracy the right of people to exercise a vote, have their voice heard, and then have that decision upheld peacefully should never be undone by a mob. Now, on the other hand, uh, we have comments from our adversaries and enemies. Iranian President Hassan Rouhani mocked the chaos unleashed on the US Capitol by the President Donald Trump's supporters and said it exposed the fragility of Western democracy. What we saw in the United States yesterday evening and today, Rouhani said, shows above all how fragile and vulnerable Western democracy is. We saw that, unfortunately, the ground is fertile for populism, despite the advances in science and industry. And Rouhani called Trump a populist and said, and I quote, A populace has arrived, and he has led his country to disaster over these past four years. Uh, In Russia, Putin was silent, but others were not. Konstantin Kosachev, the chairman of the Russian Upper House Foreign Affairs Committee, said the storming signaled the derailment of American democracy. The celebration of democracy is over, he said. Alas, this is rock bottom. I say this without a hint of gloating. America no longer defines the course and therefore has lost the right to set it. And even more so to impose it on others. And finally, the Chinese, China reacted to the storming of the US Capitol by comparing it to the wrecking of the Hong Kong legislature. And Chinese web users still remember the distress and anger they felt when they saw rioters in Hong Kong storming the Legislative Council complex, scrawling graffiti, smashing and robbing items, and instead of condemning the violence, US politicians hailed the courage of these mobs. And that's a quote from the state's backed Global Times newspaper. A pro-Beijing lawmaker, An Chiang in Hong Kong, posted a video of the turmoil in the US on our facebook page with the caption that read american lawmakers can finally experience this democratic violence and get a taste of what it is like for the legislature to be occupied so that's just some take from friends and foes uh, let me just stop and then maybe we can discuss it a little bit by saying that in my diplomatic career um America was seen as a shining city on the hill and a beacon of hope and a beacon of democracy. Our democracy was the envy of the world. Uh, Last week's insurrection has dimmed that beacon of hope and that light and we have much work to do to restore our democracy and our position in the world. What happened on the Capitol was a major blow to the ability of the United States to carry out successful foreign policy. So on that, we got work to do, gentlemen.
0: We do. Uh, I was uh, particularly uh, taken by the, uh, the Chinese uh, jumped on this uh, very quickly and, and loudly and uh, relentlessly. Uh, there was a lot of uh, commentary, as you pointed out, and uh, we'll put up uh, some uh, Twitter uh, uh, input here. Uh, they really likened uh, what had happened at uh, the U.S. Capitol to the Hong Kong pro-democracy movement, uh, uh, what's been going on there for the past couple of years. Uh, you can see some of the, uh, the pictures that were put up and comparing uh, Washington with, uh, with Hong Kong. So, um, you know, when, when the, the State Department, I think within the last week, there, there was uh, a number of statements from the State Department talking about the promotion of democracy around the world. And it's got to sound really hollow to anybody around yeah. the world who's paying attention.
1: Well, I think State Department also uh, sent out a worldwide shut up order to the embassies that we have around <laughs> the world saying that basically they should not comment on what was going on at all. Uh, just let it play out in the news. And uh, there were a series of diplomats who, I don't know, it's 30 some, I have not been able to get my hands on the telegram they sent in using what's called the dissent channel. So back in the Vietnam War, a a particular channel, a telegraphic channel was set up so people, diplomats could dissent from existing policy directives and it would be kept as an in-house discussion. The idea being that people who think the policy is wrong should be able to express their opinions and the leadership should know that they have a whole bunch of other ideas out there from the troops. So this has gone in and uh, things, just so much going on, it's kind of hard to grasp the whole thing.
0: Yeah, I Um, saw that report as well, uh, Dick.
1: And Pompeo was planning to go to to, uh, Europe, to Belgium, and uh, cancel the trip at the very last moment because the Various European leaders basically refused to meet with him. So that doesn't sound like a good idea, right?
2: Dick, I just wanted to add, you and I were talking about this before the program started, that last week when former secretaries of defense across different political parties and every living former secretary of defense published a letter in the Washington Post that uh, basically reminded uh, the military establishment Of their response, of their constitutional responsibilities in a time of turmoil, and it's staggering uh, in any kind of historical sense that an act like that happened uh, in the United States.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that preceded uh, January 6. Is that is that your recollection, Brett? Yes, it came out. It
1: it did. But then, the the last in the last couple of days, the all of the, the the heads of all of the military services. Uh, issued a letter to all U.S. troops around the world about their responsibilities under the Constitution and how they should behave and uh, make sure they defend our country and don't get involved in things that shouldn't be getting involved in.
0: Yeah, the word unprecedented has been beat to death, but uh, clearly uh, statements like that. And, you know, we've seen in the past couple of years uh, national security officials lining up with similar statements on this or that uh, Complication of what's been going on in in uh, national security issues and foreign policy, but uh, right. the uh, the military statements. And then there was uh, General Milley, the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, after the uh, uh, the, the protests at Lafayette Park, uh, in which he was uh, uh, walking across the park in the, in that display. Um, you may recall the president holding up the Bible and. Uh, pre- uh, General Milley was, was uh, very embarrassed that he had been involved in that and, and put out yeah. a video and a statement to the troops that uh, he had made a mistake in getting involved in that and, and the military had no role in, in the political events like that.
2: Dick, I also wanted to add something to your earlier point that, that uh, uh, the foreign reaction, particularly for the Western oriented foreign reaction has a lot to do in my mind with their view that uh, instability in the United States uh, government creates uh, foreign repercussions that uh, are not knowable, perhaps, but are definitely not positive from the standpoint of Western and and Eastern, for that matter, democracies, that this is something that emboldens our uh, adversaries, that gives credibility to authoritarian governments, and uh denigrates sort of the western political moral code so uh it's more than just what happens in the us which is bad enough but it's also what happens internationally
1: absolutely i think you're spot on with that Brick. i mean the the, the world looks to the united states for leadership or has uh, whether it will continue to do so is really kind of up to us and what kind of a nation we want to become so we have to decide what what, what do we stand for How important is our democracy? How do we combat the uh, rule of the lie when you you spout lies all the time and then you accuse somebody else of being the liar? So we'll see what happens. We have a week, right? And the capital is going to get buttoned down and then we'll have a new president and we'll see where we go with this. And then what's going on today with the impeachment episode and uh, interesting times, gentlemen.
0: I think Senator Romney uh, said it well when he made the point that uh, that uh, the dissemination of truth is is the mark of leadership. So we need to get uh, get back to uh, the disinfectant of truth uh, among us. And, and you know what happened there was just simply the product of disinformation and everything we've been talking about about uh, cyber issues and uh, information on. Uh, all the social media and, and building up and playing on people's frustrations. Um, but now we're, now we're at a, a criminal element. And you know, last week, the night before the, uh, the riots on, on January 5th, we had Malcolm Dance uh, in a terrific webinar. And I right. uh, suggest that people take a look at that on our youtube.com slash TNWAC video archive channel. Uh, Malcolm, we, we started talking about about the national bombing, and then they rolled into domestic terrorism, and he, he got in uh, very deep with uh, this QAnon philosophy, and, uh, you know, it's, it's unimaginable that people are, are buying this stuff, uh, you know, the deep state and, and pedophiles, and it's, all it's of which All of
1: which is not true. And That's no. the that an amazing thing, and it's not just the U.S. phenomenon. I mean, QAnon has followers all around the world, now. Right. and the Falun Gong were involved somehow and mysteriously. I am in in the riot; they yeah. were in Washington D.C. supporting Trump for some reason. So,
0: okay, uh, well, on that bright
1: note, Mr. Ryan, <laughs> I think the, uh, one of the good things that you, you, you kind of looking for something to uh, hang your hat on a little bit is that our friends sure,
0: let's let, let us have let let us have a little bit of optimism our friends
1: are standing by us they are they are with us they are shocked and appalled but they are not giving up on us and they are really you know encouraging the united states to get its act together and make sure our democracy functions properly so we will see what happens a week from now with mr biden as president
0: well that you make a very good point and the uh, us uh, the british ambassador the uk ambassador to the united states um, ambassador pierce she was uh, interviewed on a program called uh, the world which is a uh, national public radio uh, program and you can download the podcast i suggest you either tune in uh two o'clock central time every uh, every day or check it out online at uh, just uh, google for the world uh, uh, npr uh, she was interviewed and she was uh, Uh, very supportive of the United States' uh, uh, prospects of getting past uh, this speed bump and and moving on. And then she talked with the Atlanta World Affairs Council the other day, and uh, similarly uh, enthusiastic about uh, the relationship between the UK and the US and uh, that they were unwavering and their their belief that uh, better days were ahead. So let's uh, end this segment on a a touch of optimism and turn towards uh, Dr. Breck Walker, who's going to tell us uh, what the heck's going on with uh, specifically Taiwan? But Breck, it looks like there's a lot of uh, items on the to-do list of the Secretary of State who is checking off these things, and some say planting landmines for the incoming <laughs> Biden administration. So let's let's look at the uh, the case of, uh, of Taiwan.
2: Right. Um, hey, and Pat, let me add one more thing of optimism, if it's okay. What was it? I think it was Churchill, but I may be wrong, that had the quote that at the end at the end of the day, the United States always does the right thing. You can depend upon it, although you can also depend upon the U.S. trying every other possible solution before they hit upon the right thing. So maybe we have tried the Trump administration. And notice I say Trump administration, not a Republican administration. I think they're two different things. But we've tried a Trump administration, and now maybe we'll move on to something else. Uh Uh, for a long, long time. Anyway, on Taiwan. Here, here. So uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced this past Saturday that he is lifting all restrictions on how U.S. officials deal with Taiwanese officials. And before this announcement, there had been, I think, 40 years, roughly, of the US not treating uh, Taiwan as a sovereign state in terms of diplomatic formalities, that there's no exchange of ambassadors, that there are very limited meetings between government officials. It's sort of a a charade that our relationship with China since 1979 uh, has required. Because the Chinese believe that Taiwan is a renegade province. It's not an independent country. And the U.S., as well as most of the rest of the world, has acted like this is the case, at least on the surface in terms of intergovernmental relations and no official contact. So Pompeo's now said, no more such niceties. And uh, the People's Republic of China, the PRC, has lashed out at this. They said, quote, the Trump administration in its continuing efforts to burn the house down before leaving office has crossed a dangerous red line with China. So what is this ruckus all all about? And if it's okay, I'm going to give a two-minute quick uh, history uh, that I think is necessary to sort of understand the issue. But China had a 20-year civil war that ended in 1949, and the communists under Mao Zedong won. And they took over the Chinese state, establishing the People's Republic of China, the PRC. The former government of China, and a government that had been the ally of the US during World War II, and that's Chiang Kai-shek as he was known in those days and his Huomintang party supporters, they lost, they fled to the island of Taiwan, which is hundred miles off the mainland, and they set up the Republic of China or the ROC. Now both sides after the civil war claimed to be the legitimate government of the Chinese people. And the West, including the United States, recognized Taiwan as that legitimate government for the next 20 years. The communists under Mao Zedong on the mainland were tarred by the West, at least, as an outlaw regime. But in 1971 and 1972, President Nixon and his national security advisor and later Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, decided to reach out to the communists uh, and establish new and better relations. And they did this to gain leverage over the Soviets in the Cold War. They did it to open up economic opportunity for the United States and the West. And frankly, they did it just to recognize as well, geopolitical reality. In 1971, the PRC had 800 million people and was destined to become an economic superpower. They have 1.4 billion today in population. And in 1971, Taiwan had a population of 16 million and was going to be uh, a meaningful trade partner, but was not gonna dominate uh, the economic scene, dominate be the right word, but was not gonna play as big a presence in the economic scene as China. So we switched horses and following that Nixon opening to China, the world quickly shifted to recognize the PRC as the legitimate government of China. And because the PRC required as a condition of normalizing relations with the West, the world had to drop official relations with Taiwan and Taiwan became something less than a sovereign state, and the U.S. F- fell in line with that. We established diplomatic relations with the PRC in 1979 during the Carter administration, and in that same at the same time, we discontinued formal diplomatic relations with Taiwan. Yet, the U.S. continued to have and has strong informal relations with Taiwan, including close economic and defense relationships. and And going with that, since uh, uh, 1979, there's been. Uh, An implied if unstated promise on the the part of the United States to defend Taiwan from any invasion coming from the mainland. So since 1979, in my mind at least, U.S. foreign policy across administrations, across political parties, has been bring China, the PRC, into the global economy with the hope of making it a responsible global citizen and facilitating a shift to a more democratic government in China. And to do this, we had to address Chinese sensitivities about Taiwan, so the US would act officially, at least, like it was not a sovereign state. And informally, though, we would offer a protection to Taiwan against a PRC invasion. So our hope was that we could deter the PRC from ever invading Taiwan, and at the same time, deter Taiwan from declaring independence, which might be a tripwire for mainland aggression. But we wanted to keep the peace, we wanted to have Economic relations with both groups, Taiwan and uh, China, and uh, and we kept suggesting that we hope for a peaceful resolution down the road. Hopefully, when the PRC maybe became a little bit less authoritarian and Taiwan might be more willing to uh, uh, join them into a unitary state. But Pompeo's announcement was sort of a stick in the eye to the PRC, and you know everybody's wondering. Or I was wondering, why did he do this? Well, I have to think, in part, it's to put the Biden administration on the spot. There may be a political cost to Biden from backing off of this Pompeo initiative of of appearing not to be tough on China. But there are some other commentators who have suggested that even if not intended, Pompeo's move may work out well for Biden, that it may give the Biden administration a stronger negotiating position than he otherwise would have had uh, at uh, at the start of his administration. Now, uh, in all events, this episode points to Taiwan as a possible hotspot in coming years and maybe even in coming months, highlighted by yesterday's Wall Street Journal editorial by Walter Russell Meade. But China has become vastly stronger militarily since the 1970s, and it could easily overwhelm Taiwan in an invasion today in the absence of the U.S. coming in a big way to Taiwan's defense. And the PRC under its current leader, Xi Jinping, has become much more aggressive in trying to expand its influence in the region, and especially as we've talked about on other GNR programs in the South China Sea. And at the same time, there may be growing doubts about the United States' commitment to defending Taiwan. Would the US really enter into a war with China, a major war with China, to defend a small country that it does not have a formal alliance with? And if these doubts that are percolating out there, they in turn have the potential to weaken our relationships in the region, other relationships we have, and not least our formal alliances with Japan and South Korea. So China and the U.S. are competing for, for influence in Asia and Taiwan will be an important battle, battleground, although hopefully not a real battleground. And the U.S. wants to deter China from attacking Taiwan. Deterrence requires the U.S. convince China that we would go to war to defend Taiwan and that our relationship with the Taiwanese is a vital American interest. And how do we convince them convince them of that? And maybe Pompeo's move, arguably, is a small step in the direction of convincing China that Taiwan is something that uh, they better not fool with. So, Pat, that, that's my comments on that.
0: Greg, hmm. uh, excellent uh, laydown of what's going on there. What's, what's your uh, thoughts on... The likelihood that Beijing you know some people say that that is inevitable that uh, Beijing will go after Taiwan they're they're seeking reunification and they've never foresworn uh, military means to do that what's what's your read on the the temperature in in Beijing after this this particular move you know the red line has always been independence being declared by Taiwan Uh, but this is this is certainly as you sit put it poking them in the eye?
2: Well, I guess I think uh, two things. One, what I used to think was almost uh, inconceivable, uh, that is is sort of back to Hitler's Germany, taking over countries uh, without any uh, provocation or justification. And uh, you know, at least I thought to some degree those days hopefully were over, but then we see Russia in the Crimea. So there's a new standard out there. The second thing I think is, I think we all probably believe it's true that if China thought there was no cost to them for uh, invading Taiwan or putting incredible diplomatic pressure on Taiwan, I think we all think they would do that if they thought it was cost free. And as we talked about earlier in the program, anytime the US is in political turmoil, I think it raises the risk that people, authoritarian governments see less risk in taking dramatic steps. So I think it's unlikely, but it's worrisome to me. Well, you, you, know,
0: you, men- you mentioned the, uh, the inconceivability of, of nations invading other nations. And I, I can <laughs> remember being in the Pentagon uh, in 1990 when Saddam mass troops on the, the border with kuwait and everybody said well he's just you know, it's exercises he's trying to intimidate the kuwaitis to uh, uh you know uh, lay off some recovery of loans that they had made during the iran- iraq war next thing you know he's uh you know, tank battalions are are moving through kuwait city so it's it's that's not uh, inconceivable um you know you raise the question of the cost to china uh, china is pretty well Positioned in the world to deflect a lot of reaction from a lot of uh, uh, corners. And I think uh, the conventional wisdom is whenever we have a new president, there are uh, provocations that test yes. the new president. Um, specifically in 2001, when the uh, George W. Bush administration took over, there was uh, what was likely an intentional collision between a Chinese fighter and a U.S. reconnaissance aircraft flying in international airspace. The, uh, the fighter crashed, the pilot was killed, uh, and the, uh, the U.S. aircraft, uh, miraculously, the pilots were able to recover uh, and land on Hainan Island. You may recall this incident. Uh, they were held there. Uh, the Chinese were able to uh, have, have the run of this highly uh, sensitive aircraft until Colin Powell, who was Secretary of State, uh, reached uh, kind of a face saving move uh, to get the crew back and, and the airplane came back in, in boxes. Um, you know, we're, we're looking at Korea doing something provocative. Uh, Taiwan, if, if you look at the, the level, uh, the volume of uh, reaction from China over this recognition, not recognition, but uh, change in, this is simply a change in position of uh, some of the things we'll talk to the Taiwanese about. So, from our perspective, this is not a dramatic change of events, but the Chinese are certainly viewing it differently.
1: Let me let Nick, me throw. What, a, what's your read? Well, just three points here to to make. Uh, interestingly enough, when I was in Warsaw, Poland, and this was in 1971, 1972. Um, that was the venue for the secret talks between the chinese and the united states that led to ping pong diplomacy and the opening of the united states relations with the people's republic of china so it's you know, kind of funny that you're there i was n- not aware that these talks were going on they were very compartmentalized there were, i think two guys in the political section who had that portfolio but they would meet in a third third place not the chinese place not our place but a third place and it worked
0: was was one of of those guys forrest gump
1: no it wasn't (laughs) forrest gump it was uh tom simons was his name who was a foreign service officer second second thing is that when when formal diplomatic relations were broken with the chinese with the taiwanese the the chiang kai-shek guys Basically what happened is the US embassy in Taiwan became the United States interest section in Taiwan. And the Chinese Taiwanese embassy in Washington DC became their section. The diplomatic status of the Americans in Taiwan and the diplomatic status of the Taiwanese in Washington didn't change. So we, we've basically, withdrew formal recognition, recognition of them as a, a you know, sovereign power. But as far as the diplomatic niceties were concerned, you know, everybody, everything kind of stayed the same. And a third little point is last Sunday, I got my first COVID shot. So I'm going to get my second COVID shot on the 31st of January. And right now, in the middle of June, Rotary International has scheduled an international Rotary Convention, guess where? In Taiwan. And if I can get the COVID under control and the thing goes on, I'm going to go to Taiwan. I've never been there. Although it was before we uh, recognized the PRC, uh, all of the in-depth Chinese language training that was done for American diplomats, you had a year in the United States at the Foreign Service Institute. And in the second year, you would go to Taiwan and basically study Chinese in a Chinese speaking environment. So back well, to your regular question, what's gonna happen?
0: Yeah.
1: My sense is that, the, that China has more to lose than to gain by trying to force something on the Taiwanese. But if the Taiwanese do cross the red line, I think China would
0: move. Yeah, Um it's, you can it's disagree, an interesting Brett.
2: situation. No, I think that's a good analysis, and I just hope they don't move while you're over there visiting. <laughs> well, congratulations
0: <laughs> on the COVID shots. I'm glad to, glad to see that somebody's- Yeah, you yeah, know, it was
1: really, they, they did a great job. The, the Nashville public health people, and they were real organized, and you got your appointment, and uh, away you go. So your turn will come shortly, gentlemen.
0: Well, if anybody hasn't seen uh, the announcements, uh, there are uh, random drawings of names to receive the COVID shot every day. Um, it's a standby system in the every morning you have to send in an email to covid 19 standbynashvillegovernor and tell them that uh, you're prepared to show up in the Five Points neighborhood of East Nashville. Uh, after 2.30, they'll determine if they have uh, doses left uh, to give that they don't want to spoil so they're going to uh, look at the emails that are in every day and, and call some people up to come and get the uh, extra doses so there's a little public service announcement from your global news review team
1: There you go. Uh,
0: let's let's wrap this up with uh, a conversation a, a brief one about the uh, secretary of state pompeo and his uh, uh, welcoming gifts for the biden administration in addition to this action with Taiwan. He's also um, put Cuba on the list of uh, state sponsors of of terrorism, uh, which introduces a whole new diplomatic uh, relationship with what had been an an opening of the door with Cuba during the Obama administration. And he's also um, designated uh, the Houthis, the, uh, uh, the rebel group in Yemen who are fighting against uh, Saudi and UAE coalition over the uh, the future of Yemen against uh, the vice pre- the president, President Hadi in uh, in Yemen. Uh, a lot of humanitarian assistance folks uh, say that uh, this makes it very difficult for them to to do their mission uh, to get supplies into uh, people who are facing famine and, and really disastrous situations. So the, these are just a couple of the. Uh, the things that are that are going on in the diplomatic world, that the Biden administration is going to have to come in and and uh, either sort out or see uh, complicating the landscape for them. Dick, what do you, what do you think? The uh, uh, October surprise, a Christmas bonus? What what's going on?
1: Uh, my sense, so he he is just dumping stuff he wants to dump and figures he doesn't have to be around for any consequences. But I think also. It's equally important. I think Mr. Pompeo has political ambitions that go beyond being a, an ex Secretary of State. So he is positioning himself, I believe, for political involvement in the in the future, whether he'll you know, run for office or whatever. But I, you know, Yemen is, is a kind of a funny place. There are a lot more people there than I think, right? There's they have a big population. And uh, this is sort of a, been on the screen for some time, but off the radar. I mean, you know, you talk about a little bit, the Saudis are involved heavily in this whole thing. But the United States is, except through the Saudis, we really haven't been involved in this area of the world much, Yemen.
0: Well, I I think our presence is below the radar. We have uh, reportedly a a number of special forces that are there looking for uh, AQAP, the Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, They were in Saudi Arabia in in the uh, uh, 2003-2005 era. The Saudis did a pretty effective job of kicking them out. So they moved to Yemen and uh, took up uh, some landscape there. That's where they had the uh, the bomb maker and, and some other characters that uh, didn't uh, outlast uh, the drone campaign, uh, but the bomb maker was the guy who crafted uh, the shoe bomb on the airplane and oh, the, ago, uh, pr- yeah. the the printer cartridge bomb that uh, got onto a plane that was headed for the states. And the Saudis tipped us off. Uh, so I think uh, U.S. special forces, and we've got a lot of guys in the Horn of Africa, just across the Bab el Mandeb Strait. Um, in uh, in Djibouti and and you know we've got some in Somalia, although it looks like they're downsizing the Somalia presence. Yeah. So that region, there's a lot going on as, as you suggest, and um, I don't think Americans really have a good idea. Maybe maybe we need to take up that that topic. Breck you're uh, you're the historian among us. Maybe maybe uh, we'll uh, we'll take a look at Horn of Africa issues. Well, we we've, we've yeah, already yeah. talked about. Ethiopia. Of Sheba. All right. well uh, brett gave us a, a great uh description of what's going on in ethiopia with the um the problems with the renegade provinces and we've got the uh, uh the massive dam project uh, that uh, the egyptians are, are worried about um the great ethiopian dam um and it apparently this week they were negotiating uh, but the, the talks fell apart. But we're getting far afield from uh, Taiwan and uh, what's going on there. So let's jump into our last topic and uh, move the, the show along here. And, and we're going to talk a, a little bit about uh, Iran and their, their nuclear program. Um, I will try to avoid uh, too much getting into the, uh, the nuclear fuel cycle um, and, and put, put, putting everybody asleep. But uh, this is an important uh, background uh, on, on what's happening between the United States and uh, and Iran. Uh, if you if you look at uh, the tensions uh, between the U.S. and Iran and and our partners in the region, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Israel, uh, and so forth, and Iran, uh, one of the uh, the main features of that uh, friction is the Iranian nuclear program, and if we uh, look, look back over time a little bit, and, and I'll just mention that uh, in the, the mid 90s, uh, when I was still wearing the uh, Navy uniform, I was an intelligence officer at CENTCOM. And one of my portfolios as the uh, uh, intelligence guy looking over transnational issues was weapons of mass destruction and terrorism. And uh, we were constantly looking at the Iranian program and obviously, the Iraqi program—they they were a uh, major concern uh, to uh, to Americans looking at uh, what's happening in the, in that part of the world. But uh, let's uh, dial back the uh, the clock a little bit and and look at the Iranian program. And uh, people would be surprised to know that the Iranian nuclear program started in the 1950s. Um, <laughs> the uh, the Shah of Iran wanted to. Uh, build a uh, Atoms for Peace uh, U.S. program. So he got involved with the U.S. in establishing the uh, Atomic Energy Organization of Iran. And they had uh, ambitious plans to build 20 nuclear power reactors, a uranium enrichment facility, and a reprocessing plant. And the whole idea, you know, people say, well, uh, countries like Iran are oil exporters. Why do they need nuclear power? Well, they... um, the rationale, and, and this is uh, the case in the UAE where they're building nuclear power plants and the Saudis uh, are, are heading in that direction, is that uh, oil exporters need that crude oil for uh, their revenue. So if they don't have to burn that uh, fuel uh, to provide energy for their, their domestic consumption, uh, they can uh, put that on the market and, and that's, uh, that's the revenue. Uh, especially these countries where uh, selling uh, petroleum is, is their main source of income. However, in uh, 1979, uh, they, uh, and, and they did succeed in building a plant at Bushir on the Persian Gulf, which is still there and is now operational with the assistance of uh, Russian um, atomic uh, specialists. Uh, but in 1979, the Iranian Revolution deposed the Shah, and Ayatollah Khomeini uh, moved in, but he called the nuclear program un-Islamic and ordered it terminated. And now the un-Islamic part of it has to do with uh, building nuclear weapons. Uh, They they didn't have a problem with nuclear power, but uh, apparently there was some uh, thought in the Iranian program that uh, uh, they could use the the nuclear program as a cover for uh, a weapons program. So they reversed uh, course and, uh, in 1984 and started uh, pushing uh, building the Bushehr uh, reactor and, and bringing that online. So currently, Iran has uh, complete nuclear fuel cycle capabilities, including uranium uh, milling, uh, mining, conversion, and enrichment facilities. And we'll, we'll uh, take a, a, just a quick look here. At, uh, at where some of these uh, facilities are. And they're, they're spread out uh, pretty far and wide over, uh, over Iran. So uh, people talk about uh, taking out this or that facility, um, but uh, you're really talking about a, a well-developed uh, infrastructure uh, that extends around the country. And you can see how big Iran is compared to uh, 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 super, uh, imposing the, the map of Iran on the United States, it, it would extend from nearly Kansas up through uh, the borders of Washington state. It's a very large country and, and these things are, are spread out all over the place. Uh, obviously some of the facilities are more important than others, uh, but uh, they they all play a, a part. Uh, moving to uh, the, the current situation, the, the reason that uh, Iran is again in the news with its nuclear program is that they, uh, they are moving to enrich uranium from Um, what had been prescribed by the uh, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, Uh, that was the agreement that uh, the U.S. signed in 2015, along with the P5 plus one powers. Uh, That's the uh, Security Council members plus uh, Germany and the European Union. Um, So what's in the news uh, now is Iran's declaration that they are refining uh, enriching the uranium from uh, the low enriched levels, which were permitted under the JCPOA, uh, to highly enriched, up to 20%, uh, which uh, doesn't sound like you're, you're quite close enough to weapons grade, 90%. Uh, but as you can see in this uh, depiction here, um, provided by the Nuclear Threat Institute, which is an excellent resource if you wanna dig deeper into what's going on with Iran and their nuclear weapons program, as well as uh, New START and and other nuclear issues. To get from um, 20% to 90%, which is weapons grade material, it just requires 10% more effort compared to getting from natural uranium to uh, the uh, lower enriched, uh, which takes 70% of effort. So uh, 20% doesn't sound like much, but uh, in reality, it puts you uh, on the doorstep Mm -hmm of having a nuclear weapon. The, uh, the US position has been that the Iranians will not be permitted to obtain a nuclear weapon. And in fact, the Iranians are a non-nuclear participant in the NPT, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation uh, Treaty. So they're, uh, they are banned by that treaty. And uh, under the JCPOA, they, uh, they uh, agreed that they would never pursue uh, a nuclear weapon. Uh, however, in 2018, uh, President Trump dropped out of the uh, JCPOA. It's still enforced by the other members of the P5 plus one and Iran, but Iran last year started to break out uh, from the provisions. The International Atomic Energy Agency, which has provided uh, inspection uh, regime to the facilities, uh, all of the nuclear facilities, and has the ability uh, to drop in and do inspections on uh, facilities, uh, they continue to operate in Iran, uh, but there's indications that the Iranians may give them the boot. So this, uh, as we see the end of the Trump administration and the opening of the Biden administration, uh, we're looking at one more landmine um, that the Biden administration is going to have to deal with. I think the position announced by um, Mr. Biden and his advisors has been that they would uh, like to get back into the JCPOA as a way to uh, prevent Iran from moving further to building uh, a weapon, and right now the assessment is uh, rather than a year or more away from having enough fissile material to build a nuclear weapon, they're two to three months away. So uh, this is uh, kind of an urgent uh, need to uh, resolve when uh, President Biden takes over. The um, the international climate in the Gulf is uh, it, it, it's never been. Uh, a very peaceful place to uh, to sail around, having been there on on ships and uh, visits and so forth. Uh, But right now, it's uh, increasingly uh, volatile as Iran uh, breaks out of the uh, JCPOA uh, limits. So we didn't get too deep into the nuclear fuel cycle, Dick. I I didn't put you asleep. Um, You're still with us.
1: (laughs) Are The uh, Israelis going to allow this to occur?
0: Well, is, Israel has stated that uh, they too would not permit Iran to have a nuclear weapon. Um, they, their leverage, they're outside of the JCPOA, so they're not a, a participant in right. that. Uh, they do have some military capability that they've, uh, um, that it has been postulated they could bring to bear uh, to attack some of these targets. But if you look at that, uh, the laydown of targets there. Uh, You know, and and it seems like every couple of years up until the JCPOA was signed, uh, people would uh, roll out the the theory that we were going to have an air campaign against these targets. Uh, These are, you know, there there was an explosion at Natanz where they were uh, building centrifuges last summer, and they uh, quickly uh, restored all that underground. Uh, These targets are uh, deeply buried, uh, many of the uh, centrifuges where the fissile material is. And the United States has developed these massive uh, bunker bomber, uh, bunk- bunker bombs, but they're so large that the only aircraft uh, that can carry them are B-52s. Uh, and I believe the B-1s may be able to carry them. You know, and occasionally we'll fly a, a B-52 uh, from the US over the Gulf just to uh, remind the Iranians that we, we can do that. Um, but you're, you're talking about an air campaign of uh, numbers of sorties. that would be uh, incredibly difficult to pull off. Um, Our air power in the region is uh, limited to uh, what's based in uh, Qatar. We have uh, a base uh, in Doha, Qatar, and then the aircraft carriers that uh, come and go. uh, The Nimitz, uh, USS Nimitz, the aircraft carrier was on station in the Gulf. Uh, They left to go support the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Somalia a couple of weeks ago, and they were slated to go uh, home. They've been on deployment forever, and just a, a footnote here with the pandemic. Uh, you know, it used to be you go on a six-month cruise, and you you could expect to pull in you know every couple of weeks to a port, and have a little R and R. But with the pandemic, uh, these these ships, uh, the crews, uh, the men and women on these ships are leaving their home ports, and sailing you know 210, 240 days, uh, port to port. No liberty. It's it's a tough. A tough cruise. But anyway, uh, the uh, the Nimitz is back on station because we had the anniversary on January 3rd of the uh, killing of General Qasem Soleimani. So we were expecting that, that on the anniversary that that might be the cause uh, of some conflict with Iran. So it's, it's a uh, tough situation. We'll have to wait and see uh, what the Biden administration does. Uh, meanwhile, the Iranians are a, number, are. a number of
1: the people that uh, Biden's bringing in on his national security team were involved in negotiating the JCPOA, right?
0: Right, yeah. And, the... you know,
2: that. Sorry, Pat. Uh,
0: this, this week, I'll, I'll just mention that uh, Ambassador Bill Burns uh, was, uh, I believe, uh, Dick, uh, straighten me out here, was, was he one of the main uh, actors in, in that whole JCPOA run up? Yes, he's now been named as the uh, uh, nominee to be director of the Central Intelligence Agency.
2: You know, there, there is a uh, geopolitical commentator and speaker, Peter Zihan, I think he pronounces his last name, Z-E-I-H-A-N, and he's spoken recently on the Iran situation, and, and he's suggesting, I think it's an interesting argument, that uh, the Trump administration through its tightening up of the sanctions and its much more bellicose approach to Iran has created perhaps, and and as well the Trump administration pulling together a lot of the Sunni nations in conjunction with Israel to oppose Iran, uh, that he's created an opportunity for the Biden administration to strike a better deal than perhaps the Obama administration had. And while I'm sure there are guys, from the Obama administration uh, involved in this, Zion is arguing that at least at the senior level, it's a new group. And that uh, even though the details of the deal might not be publicly announced if and when a deal is struck, but that it actually might be a much better deal from the United States perspective than than the uh, JCPOA, Is he's making that argument.
0: Yeah, it's, it's gonna be tough because the Biden administration has a very small window in the short term, there's gonna be an opportunity uh, to start talking with Iranians, but the, the Biden administration is gonna have a pretty, pretty full dance card there for the first 100 days. And then uh, Iran gets into uh, the Nowruz, the uh, New Year's festival, which goes a couple of weeks. And then they're gonna get into a presidential election in June. And uh, after Trump pulled out of the JCPOA, the hardliners really uh, were at, at the advantage. Uh, they were ascendant uh, saying that, you, know, you, you can't uh, deal with the United States and they still are making noise that why would we ever wanna get back into an agreement with the United States in four years, we'll have another uh, turnover administration and, and they'll dump out of it. So um, these negotiations aren't simply going back to the table and say, saying you know okay here, here we are let's let's resign the, the Jcpoa and in fact the Iranians have added uh, conditions they want to be reimbursed for the economic damage that's occurred since the uh, Trump administration left the, the agreement so there we are um, and we're coming up on an hour I'll, I'll let you guys uh, throw in your final two cents here and then we'll wrap it up
1: Doctor. Dick. Let me go for I, I, I really let, don't have a, much two cents to, to throw in except that I think this is going to be one of the most interesting historic weeks in American history and the world is watching what goes on. Um, there should be a vote this, late this afternoon, my sense is that the President will be impeached and then the question of how the House handles sending over or not sending over the impeachment documents so that the Senate has to deal with them. The Senate is not in session, right? So they would have to come back into in some kind of an emergency session if they were to deal with this right away. And you know, you all see the same kind of speculation that I do on TV that uh, maybe maybe we'll, you know, give Biden 100 days without having to deal with this in the Senate, get his team through and get them Uh, officially in their chairs. So I don't know.
0: We'll see. Yeah, yeah, Dick, I suspect you and I are news nerds. Um, I I know that you've got your TV going next to your head there. I've got one within earshot. Breck, I I don't know about you. Are you you consumed with the news these days?
2: Well, I just say in terms of last comments, I'm like everybody, I'm looking forward to 2021. It's a new start from a lot of different perspectives. And I'm hopeful, and I think everybody is probably hopeful that our government, our federal government on both parties can find a way to work together, drop some of the ideology on both sides and let's do that they, you know, try pragmatically to move ahead and do right, do what's right for the country. And I I think it's a good time for us all to be hopeful about that and not be disabused of it, at least for the first hundred days.
0: Great. Okay, well, let's wrap it up there. We've uh, gone a a good uh, solid hour and I hope uh, people Um, I've gotten something from from our uh, conversation about international reaction to the capital insurrection, uh, what's going on with Taiwan, uh, the potential for trouble for the Biden administration there, and a little backgrounder on uh, the Iranian nuclear program. We'll be back next week. Um, Do I see a question in the queue here? What about the question? Okay, well, I don't see a question there, so we will... Wrap it up. Oh, yes, and, uh, the question. Brett oh, yes, has the, to, to give the, the
2: answer. answer. The answer to the question. Uh-oh, uh oh. Uh-huh. I mean, uh, Pat, can you put the question back up? <clears throat> yeah, here I know we go. The answer. <laughs> here we so, go. Americans surveyed this weekend believe President Trump bore responsibility for a deadly, deadly mob attack on the United States Capitol. What official tenet of US foreign policy was undermined by the attack? And of course, its promotion of democracy. And just to make that point, I think probably there's been no more consistent tenet of American foreign policy since the beginning of our government uh, back in the 1770s that uh, has been uh, more important to who we are than promotion of democracy. And it is such a sad, unfortunate circumstance that all of a sudden we're not promoting democracy in our own country. Um, So I think that's a great question, Pat.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. See, we get, we get a little time off and we get rusty on the, the process here. Thanks, thanks Dick, for uh, keeping us on track. And uh, uh, Overton Colton, who, who said, what about the question? We're, we appreciate the, uh, the tip there.
2: Well, thanks everybody for,
0: uh, for, for joining us. And uh, just a reminder, please uh, consider becoming a member of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Uh, that's how we uh, pay the cable bill for Ambassador Bowers and uh, all, all of the other things that go along with keeping the show on the air. Uh, you can go to tnwac.org uh, and uh, sign up to become a member or uh, make a financial gift. Uh, include us in your philanthropic uh, charitable endeavors and we would appreciate it. Uh, gentlemen, we'll see you uh, next week. Uh, we have a Tuesday night, uh, Global Nashville with Carl Dean. Uh, Mayor Dean uh, will be talking with Ralph Scholz the uh, president and CEO of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce about, well, not much going on in Nashville these days, just uh, pandemics and the and, uh, explosions and, and stuff like that. So we'll we'll look forward to Carl and uh, Ralph talking about what's going on in, in Nashville and uh, bringing us up to date. And that's it for us, uh, gentlemen. Uh, have a good week. We will talk to you all next time.
2: Good to see everybody.
0: Bye-bye.